1: and welcome to Nutrients 2020 second quarter earnings call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. A question and answer session will follow the formal presentation. As a reminder, this conference is being recorded. I would now like to turn the conference over to Richard Downey, VP of Investor Relations.
2: Thank you, Operator. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Nutrients conference call to discuss our second quarter 2020 results and outlook. On the phone with us today is Mr. Chuck Magro, President and CEO of Nutrien, Mr. Pedro Ferrara, our CFO, and the heads of our three business units. As we conduct this conference call, various statements that we make about future expectations, plans, and prospects contain forward-looking information. Certain material assumptions were applied in making these conclusions and forecasts. Therefore, actual results could differ materially from those contained in our forward-looking information. Additional information about these factors and assumptions are contained in our current quarterly report to our shareholders, as well as our most recent annual report, MDNA, and annual information form filed with Canadian and U.S. Securities Commissions to which we direct you. I will now turn the call over to Mr. Chuck Magro.
3: Thanks, Richard, and good morning, everyone. Nutrient second quarter results demonstrates the strength of our business even during these unprecedented times. The bottom line is that food is essential and there is no company better positioned to help farmers meet the growth in global demand. Our adjusted EBITDA was over $1.7 billion this quarter, and we demonstrated significant progress on our strategic and operating objectives. We were able to produce these results despite cyclical uh, weakness in fertilizer prices and global economic uncertainty. In fact, Nutrient's second quarter EBITDA was higher than the combined total of the next four largest crop nutrient companies. We also generated $1.6 billion in free cash flow this quarter, aided by strong working capital. management. I take three things away from our results today. First, the strength and performance of our retail egg solutions business and the benefits of our growth strategy. We generated nearly a billion dollars in EBITDA in the first half of the year, primarily due to strong organic growth and significantly higher margins. We also had tremendous uptake of our digital platform, which we continue to build out. Second, we achieved excellent operational results in our potash and nitrogen business units, with strong on-stream times and lower production costs, demonstrating that we generate strong cash flows even at the bottom of the cycle. And third, the fundamentals of the commodity markets are improving, including the agricultural markets. There are signs that fertilizer and most crop prices have stabilized and are beginning to recover, and the outlook into 2021 is now more positive. Let's shift to our results for the quarter and the first half. In the first half of 2020, Our retail egg solutions business delivered impressive EBITDA growth of 20% compared to last year, despite lower than expected US seeded acreage. Three quarters of the increase was from organic growth as we continue to offer growers new solutions and optimize our business. The other 25% of our growth came from highly accretive acquisitions, including from the Rulco acquisition in Australia. Our Australian business continues to perform extremely well, contributing around $150 million in EBITDA in the first half of 2020, and we continue to be ahead of our real cost synergy targets. Total Egg Solutions EBITDA margin exceeded 10% in the first half of the year, as gross profit was higher across all product lines and total gross margin percentages improved. We also lowered operating costs as a percentage of gross margin achieved efficiencies in working capital requirements, and surpassed 1 million of annual EBITDA per US location, as well as making solid progress towards all operational targets set at our last investor day. We continue to make great strides in the adoption of our Solutions Digital Hub. On a year-to-date basis, sales through the platform surpassed $700 million, exceeding our annual goal of $500 million in just six months. In the second quarter, 45% of sales available on the platform were ordered online. We continue to build out this industry-leading platform with new functionality and by collaborating with key partners. We plan to launch our new digital seed recommendation tool in the coming months. This is a data analytics decision support tool that helps evaluate seed options using the best and unbiased information, and considers soil, weather, and seed trial performance data. We also continue to grow our footprint in Brazil with the Tech Agro acquisition, and within North America with the recently acquired AgBridge, which provides valuable data transfer and management capabilities for equipment to our central data network. This startup company is a small acquisition from a dollar perspective, but we believe that it will help improve our digital agronomy offering for growers and lead to improved utilization and optimization of our extensive fleet of custom application equipment. Shifting the potash, the breadth and flexibility of our operations and distribution system was highlighted this quarter. We achieved strong sales volumes for both the second quarter and the first half of 2020, as market demand was brisk. North American sales were the primary driver, but volumes were also supported by improved offshore demand. Our second quarter potash cast cost of product manufactured was $52 per ton, down $8 from the first quarter, and was the best quarterly performance on record. As a reminder, this is a weighted average of our product mix, excluding white and specialty products, our red standard grade, had a cost below $50 per tonne this quarter, ensuring we are at the low end of the potash cost curve. Moving to nitrogen, North American sales to the agricultural markets were strong this quarter, which helped offset a downturn in industrial demand. Weaker industrial demand impacted global nitrogen prices, particularly for offshore ammonia. We proactively took took downtime at our Trinidad facility to help balance regional trade and improve our cost position. We were able to lower our overall cost profile and achieved an impressive 97% operating rate on our North American assets in the second quarter. Much of our business remains among the lowest cash cost and highest margins across nitrogen producers globally. By the end of next year, we also expect to have added almost a million tonnes of North American production from brownfield projects and improved operating performance. Now let's shift to, to what we are seeing for the outlook. We expect a stable second half of 2020, and we are constructive on 2021 and beyond. As a result, the guidance we provided in May is largely intact and we only lowered the top end in nitrogen to reflect a modestly slower recovery for ammonia and UAN prices. We maintain guidance for our ag solutions and potash segments, and we have raised expectations for phosphate. A few additional comments here on the ag market and fertilizers. The downward revision to the USDA's corn and total acreage has reduced carryout levels and stocks to use estimates And improve the outlet for the 2020 2021 crop year and farmer sentiment. Lower crop production combined with a recovering ethanol market and indications of potentially higher import demand from China has also provided a constructive backdrop for the fall season and into next year. In Brazil, growers are seeing record crop margins and have forward contracted a historically high percentage of their anticipated 2021 harvest. Brazilian soybean acreage is expected to increase by approximately 5% in the upcoming planting season and grower sentiment is extremely strong. Solid ag fundamentals and a long runway for growth is the key reason why building our Brazil ag solutions business is strategically important for us. In Australia, moisture moisture levels have improved significantly. And grower sentiment is also very supportive. Australian planted acreage is expected to increase by over 10 million acres, or 23%, and should result in higher crop input demand in the coming growing season. We expect this environment will support good earnings for our ag solutions business and global fertilizer demand. In potash, prices strengthened in most spot markets throughout the quarter, and demand continues to be solid. Our order book is fully committed into October and we remain confident in our full-year volume estimates for the global market and our corresponding sales. We expect potash sales volumes in the second half to be strong, particularly in India, Brazil and Southeast Asia. We expect that global demand momentum that started in the second quarter will carry through to 2021, leading the potash supply-demand balance to tighten and markets to continue to recover. Our global potash demand forecast for this year still holds at 65 to 67 million tons, and we expect to see growth from that in 2021. As we prepare our production network for this demand and take scheduled maintenance downtimes, we do expect our cro- costs will be slightly higher in the second half of the year. In nitrogen, we reduced our full year earnings expectations as prices have been slower to recover than previously thought due to weaker industrial demand. Extremely low nitrogen prices have tested the cost curve, but there is limited new capacity under construction. As the economy recovers, so too too will nitrogen demand and prices. Though these are unpredictable times, one thing is clear. We continue to strengthen our position as an integrated ag solutions provider we made significant progress across virtually all of our long-term operational objectives and continue to grow our Solutions footprint and solutions offering. We are paying a solid dividend to ensure our investors are rewarded throughout the commodity cycle. Our dividend remains within our targeted range, accounting for less than 60% of our expected free cash flow during the cyclically low period and accounts for only about 80% of our free cash flow from our Ag Solutions business. I want to finish up with some comments related to the environment, health and safety. Nutrient's top priority is ensuring the safety and health of our more than 25,000 employees globally and the communities where we live and work. The company successfully implemented controls and procedures to minimize the potential impact and transmission of COVID-19 at our operating facilities. We remain vigilant In this regard, and the company continues to be fully operational and our people are doing an admirable job keeping each other safe while ensuring we operate efficiently and effectively. Second, Nutrien continues to be committed to improving ESG performance and reporting. We achieved another quarter of excellent results across our key metrics. We also issued Nutrien's first ESG report in April and since that time we have achieved significant company and sector rating improvements from a number of third-party ESG agents. We expect this trend to continue over the next year as we lay out our climate and ESG strategy and targets to lead the way for our industry. In closing, Nutrien performed extremely well across all business units in a difficult and uncertain environment. We are well positioned with a stable and growing dividend, significant free cash flow, a solid balance sheet, and end markets where demand continues to increase. Now more than ever, we are proud of the significant role we play in feeding a growing world. With that operator, I'll turn the call over for questions.
2: Operator, are you there?
1: At this time, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. Analysts will be limited to one question. Once again, that is star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. We will pause for just a moment to compile the Q&A roster. Your first question comes from the line of PJ Juvkar from City. Your line is open.
4: Great, thank you, this is Kendall Marthaler on for PJ. So just uh, looking at retail, so during first quarter results, um, you noted that you wanted retail inventories pretty low, or you expected they would be low so you could restock going into the fall. So just given very strong sales in retail in the first half, can you provide a little bit more detail on the inventory situation there, specifically within crop nutrients and crop protection? Um, and would you say they're lower than normal, or just about in line with uh, what you were expecting?
3: Uh, good morning, uh, Kendall. Yeah, I'll have Mike Frank uh, answer the question specific to retail.
5: Yes, Kendall. So um, our inventories across our network uh, globally are are lower in um, crop protection and in crop nutrients. In 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 particular in North America, you know, we did come out of the season. With strong sales, as you saw from the the, the, the report today, um, and overall lower inventory, so we, we did achieve the operational metrics that we were we were looking for. And in fact, if you look at our overall working capital uh, metric, you know we're down to about uh, 18% in our working capital ratio, which is re- really strong performance for us. And so we're, if anything, we're probably a little bit ahead of expectations.
3: And just more broadly speaking, Kendall, what I would say is across our our ag value chain, so including the wholesale businesses, generally speaking, after 2019, we in the industry had a significant amount of fertilizer inventory because of the poor application seasons we saw last spring and last fall. We're feeling very good. It's part of the reason why we're more constructive for the second half and as we move into 2021. That Most of that uh, inventory now has normalized, and in fact, in some parts of the egg value chain, as, Mark, as Mike has uh, alluded to, it's quite, it's quite thin in terms of our inventory position. And, and as I mentioned, you know, looking at our order book on a forward basis, our order book is quite, is quite full uh, right through the third quarter now.
1: Your next question comes from the line of Ben Isaacson from Scotia Bank. Your line is open. Good morning and nice job on, on the quarter.
5: uh Chuck, you guys have spent
1: um billions of
5: dollars on uh, physical retail infrastructure, uh, obviously including your tuck in
6: strategy um You've now realized, I think, 45% of North American retail sales um, available uh, were made on the digital uh, platform. As that continues to succeed, um, you know, just working out backwards, if you're realizing 55 to 60 cents on the historical dollar from the physical infrastructure, is that the most efficient use of capital going forward? Is there shareholder value
5: that can be unlocked by consolidating or thinning out the brick-and-mortar business model in retail? Thank you.
3: Yeah, good morning, Ben. So, look, we, we've always said that the, the digital uh, strategy is, is it's integrated. We call it an omni-channel with, with the physical distribution network. In fact, we, we couldn't deliver the great results on the digital platform without the, the several thousand ag agronomists that work uh, inside a nutrient and with farmers on a day-to-day basis and, of course, the physical facilities to move the product. Agriculture is one of these very unique uh, I- industries where uh, when the season is open and, and farmers are ready to go to work, we need to get product, people, uh, and our assets on the farm in, in, a, in a short order, in a matter of hours. So we, we think that the, the work that we've done on the digital platform is fantastic. We, we do believe that uh, we're, we're gonna change how, how and what we can offer farmers and and make farmers more profitable, help them manage their farms, uh, as well as as help them uh, kind of maneuver the sustainability world. Uh, And and that's a big, big part of our our investment. But we do think that it goes hand in glove with our physical uh, network. In fact, we're we're very confident. We've seen other uh, players in this industry just have a, a, a digital platform and not have the physical infrastructure and they just cannot be successful given the demands that are, are pressed when we're in the heat of the season and, and the requirements that our customers need.
1: Your next question comes from the line of Steve Byrne from Bank of America. Your line is open.
7: Yes, thank you. Uh, as you noted, the urea prices have really ripped in the last couple of weeks, and, and if we look into the, the U.S.-Midwest pricing, the, uh, the urea on a per unit nitrogen basis relative to UAN and ammonia uh, is is at a real premium. Um, the the UAN and ammonia pricing there is is near you know multi year lows. So curious to hear what your view is for where does that disconnect go from here? Do you think that that, that disconnect narrows? because the urea pricing is potentially unsustainable, uh, or that you think the UAN and ammonia pricing could, could rally from here? Um, you know which, which of those scenarios is is likely and, and reflected in your guidance?
3: Yeah, good, good morning, uh, 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 Steve. I'll have Jason Newton just talk about the dynamics between urea, ammonia, and UAN, what we're seeing, and then I can address the, the guidance question at the end. Go ahead, Jason.
8: Yeah, good morning, Steve. Um, yeah, typically, uh, what you see, uh, especially at this time of year, is that uh, the urea market is being uh, driven by dynamics uh, offshore, and in particular, uh, the really robust uh, demand that we're seeing uh, from India, and to date, uh, a little bit of the inability for for Chinese suppliers to get on get in on those tenders, and so uh, we've seen seen a tight uh, global urea market and prices moving up in response and typically historically you don't see the other uh, uh, product prices ammonia and uan uh, moving in tandem um, uh, unless you're in season so the spread fluctuates uh, because the urea price is volatile Uh, as we get closer to uh, product actually being applied uh, you'd expect that those uh, those in market prices of, of ammonia and uan will move uh, to be um, more in line with historical levels uh, relative to urea, and I think you've you've already seen some of the sentiments um, turn a bit more positive uh, toward uh, the other products because of the strength in the urea market.
3: Yeah, and just to, to put that together now with with our guidance and how we're thinking about it. So look, we think that that the crop uh, maturity is, is quite advanced right now for this time of the year we are expecting an early harvest and a, and a nice application window uh, for a fall application. So from a demand perspective, and that's clearly what our, our order book is showing right now, is that we're expecting solid demand. I'd say this is a general comment, not only for nitrogen, but potash and phosphate, um, which is helpful. And the reason we trimmed our guidance in, in nitrogen was purely just on the ammonia and UAN. We just don't think that there's gonna be, because of the economic slowdown and the hit to the industrial demand for, for nitrogen products, we, we just don't think that there's gonna be as much forward momentum when it comes to pricing. But we do think that, that urea certainly is, is strong and, and there's reasons for that. The supply demand is quite tight, as Jason's articulated. Um, and and what, we, what when you look at the bottom end of our ra- of our range, you know, what we would need is is a weather event, so, you know, a very shortened application season. Um, And we're not calling for that today, but that would be the bottom of of the range. And then the top end, of course, is a a nice wide application season and and a little bit of forward momentum when it comes to to, uh, recovery and some nitrogen prices, but not a lot. We don't really need a lot to hit the top end.
1: Your next question comes from the line of Jacob Bout from CIBC. Your line is open.
5: Uh, good morning. My question is on the retail margins. Um, so solid improvement. Um, you know, we look at a year-on-year basis. We talk a bit about what drove this. Uh, was, was it mixed or, or what else is going on here? Uh, what role did digital play in this? And, and just lastly, what is your ability to uh, improve margins further?
3: Good
5: morning, Jacob. Mike Frank, will you take that question? Sure. So, Jacob, look, our first half was really about driving operational excellence and, uh, you know, focused on organic growth and, and EBITDA margins, and we executed against that strategy. You know, our stronger margins are partly a result of mix. And so, for example, in, in uh, crop protection, uh, we saw a really strong market for trees and in both uh, corn and soybeans. And there's solid margins on, on those products. Uh, obviously in, in uh, crop nutrients, you know, prices were off, but if you, if you saw in North America, we, we pretty much were able to hold our per ton margins. And so our, our teams just did a really good job of, of selling the value of, of the products. Uh, and that, that drove margins. I would say lastly, on the seed side, you know, our, our seed uh, revenues are about flat. We we actually walked away from some of our wholesale seed business, uh, which impacted revenue in, in a market where there was, you know, more planted acres, but it strengthened our margins. And so we just executed across uh, each one of our of our platforms. And, and we think that these margins, you know, are sustainable. Um, obviously, the, the digital platform is giving us, you know, more insights and helping us uh, work with our customers to make better agronomic decisions, and it's also simplifying and making the entire purchase process more efficient. And that's also driving, you know, some margin efficiency for us. So it, it's a number of pieces that that came together. Uh, but Jacob, we we think these are sustainable. In fact, we think there's a runway of opportunity ahead to continue to drive both organic growth and even margins.
3: Yeah, and and Jacob, just one further point. Um, we also think there's some further upside in margin simply because we're still integrating the ROCO acquisition. That was a, a large acquisition for us, it was a public company and we laid out the synergy targets that are going to take uh, a couple of years to accomplish. So as the rest of the synergy comp- uh, um, synergies are delivered, we do think that'll have some upward potential for overall margins because it was such a large acquisition. So uh, we we like what we see. I think Mike and the leadership team of the retail group have done a a great job, Um, and there's some there is some upside as we further integrate uh, the Roco acquisition into the overall company.
1: Your next question comes from the line of Joel Jackson from BMO Capital Markets. Your line is open.
9: Hi. Good morning. I did want to follow up on some of the commentary on seed and seed margins. Um, it was, a, I think, a more competitive dynamic in seed this year, especially in soybeans. And Nikki, you mentioned your margins were up. And there's also a bit of now um, uncertainty around you know, what will happen with the Canva use. So I guess the value of Extend if we don't get new registrations later this year for next year. Um, so I want maybe, it's a two-part question. You know, How is the seed price dynamic evolving? Do you see a more competitive Uh, market and how how might that pressure or not pressure margins and then what is sort of your plans uh, for some of the uncertainty around extend and as enlisted ramping up things
3: good morning joel mike frank will you take those questions please
5: yeah you bet um so joel good good questions look i i think um if we just kind of look across the the seed uh industry if you start with corn you know what what we saw on on unit pricing in our retail business is that Prices were, uh, you know, up just a bit, about $3 a unit. So, uh, you know, less than 1% uh, price appreciation. So it's a competitive market. We, we didn't see a big shift in uh, trade mix. And so, um, you know, the, the corn market seems pretty stable. You know, margins are, are relatively stable as well. Um, and, you know, as I just mentioned uh, previously, we walked away from some wholesale business, both in, in corn seed but as well as in soybean seed then more specific to the the soy market it's, it's extremely dynamic obviously with the uh the, the legal issues on dicamba that you know we we were faced with at the end of the uh application window you know th- those were challenges but in the end you know we were able to get dicamba on most of the acres that that farmers wanted to, to get to get it down on um we, our pricing on soybean seed was really flat. In fact, there, were, there was no, you know, appreciation or depreciation on selling price. Early in the season, the, there was some really aggressive pricing. We, you know, we, for the most part, stayed out of that. And, uh, you know, then the, the market came back, you know, and, and uh, you know, overall, again, we, we saw pretty flat uh, pricing. And and uh, on the retail side, you know, si- similar to flat margins on, on soybean now, going into 21, obviously, there's a question on whether or not, you know, Extend is going to be re-registered. And so, you know, we're working closely with our suppliers, Bayer, BSF, Corteva. Um, you know, we'll be prepared to to sell whatever the farmer uh, ends up uh, wanting. Um, you know, we expect that we're going to sell both Extend and Enlist seed next year. The real question is, you know, whether or not there's going to be uh, um, registration to allow us to apply dicamba over the top um, you know so i think we're, we're going to continue to see strengthening of the enlist platform you know we think it'll be uh this year it was about 20 of our of our uh mix next year we think it'll be north of 30 so you know there's definitely uh, some momentum with enlist right now but again we're kind of sitting back and, and waiting to see uh both from a legal standpoint and a regulatory standpoint what tools that our customers can use and and we'll have the available uh, seed to, to sell them,
1: you know, regardless of how these regulatory decisions get made. Your next question comes from the line of Adam Samuelson from Goldman Sachs. Your line is open.
8: Uh, yes, yeah, thanks. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, so the question uh, is, on, is on the potash market, and I would love to just get your – Your views um, on China as we think about the second half of the year and and into next, Chuck, in your prepared remarks, I think areas of strength in the potash market, China was notably absent from that list. And just reflect on kind of how the contract uh, evolved uh, this spring, port inventories, and kind of how you think the utility of a China contract kind of works going forward, given the experience both this year and the last couple.
3: Okay. Good morning, Adam. Uh, so, look, yeah, the, the market fundamentals for potash, uh, as we, we said, uh, v- very good first half. Uh, demand was strong. Uh, we're seeing uh, brisk movement. Uh, we mentioned, I uh, mentioned already a couple of times our order book. And the markets I did call out uh, for strength were Brazil and Southeast Asia and, and, and India. Um, and, and we are holding our, our overall market um, demand forecast to 65 to 67 million tons in 2020. And certainly we think that in 2021, the market will grow again. Um, specific to your question uh, on China, we do think that shipments in, to China in 2020 will be down um, and that's built into our overall um, forecast and in, in, in the numbers we provided. It's clear that, you know, they, they drew down their inventories. Um, they tapped their strategic reserves to gain leverage in the last contract. Um, and they won't be able to do that again th- this year, uh, unless those shipments are, are significantly higher than what we, we predict. So uh, I'm not really overly concerned about the port inventories. I think there's some gamesmanship happening here. Uh, and we view overall inventories in China, so just not just the port, but in-country, to be actually reasonably tight. Because the fundamental demand for, for potash in China, we think, grew year over year. So we're, we're feeling very good about the overall potash market, China included. Uh, if we can get to a point here where, where we continue to see solid demand in, in 2020, I think it sets up for a, another growth and in, in good year in, in 2021.
1: Your next question comes from the line of Duffy Fitcher from Barclays. Your line is open.
9: Yes. Good morning. Um, Two questions. Um, First one is just there's been a couple news articles about COVID maybe hindering the overall ability to pull in the the crop this year and and to prep for next year. So just with all your your touch points in the field, do you think COVID will be an issue um, this fall on kind of a macro basis for North America? And then the bigger question is, we're about a decade into the push into digital. You know, it was about maybe seven years ago or so that Climate Corp got sold, which is when I think it came to investors' minds how big this might be. Originally, people thought it was going to be revolutionary. You might have one winner. You know, obviously, none of that has really played out. If anything, it's been evolutionary to kind of non-existent, you know, with what we see from the outside as analysts looking at the numbers for the company. So, one, what's gone wrong with digital or what didn't happen over the last five to seven years that it was supposed to? Two, can we crack those nuts going forward? And do you see digital becoming kind of revolutionary? Can it really move the needle at some point or will it continue just to be evolutionary in your mind?
3: Yeah, good morning, Duffy. Uh, what I'll do is I'll have Mike Frank give a perspective because he's closest to the farmer on COVID and the har- harvest. Mike, please, please feel free to comment on your views on digital. And then I can, I can come back to that as well.
5: Yeah, you bet. So Duffy, look, I, I, I wouldn't anticipate any issues getting the harvest off. I mean, if you think back to uh, kind of the middle of March when, you know, COVID, the pandemic and the concerns were really ramping up, that obviously was right in the busy time of of farmers in North America, getting the crop planted. And uh, you know, firstly, you know, our employees on the front line. Uh, you know, they didn't lose a beat. They every day they came to work and they focused on, you know, making sure they were safe and the customers were safe, and and very importantly, making sure that our customers were making the right decisions. And so, I, I think it's going to be the same thing as the crop comes out. Uh, you know, farmers will get in the field, they'll harvest. Um, you know, grain elevators will operate, and uh, I wouldn't anticipate, you know, any any uh, material issues uh, from a COVID standpoint. Now look, good, good question on digital, uh, you know, revolutionary versus evolutionary. Um, look, our, our focus on digital has been very pragmatic and it's really about what we can do as a retailer based on the breadth we have uh, and, and the focus and the value that we add, uh, you know, in the value chain. Um, you know, so we're using our tools, our digital tools to, to help our agronomists and our customers make better agronomy decisions. And we're doing that with seed. We're doing it with fertilizer, uh, variable rate applications. And I would say that those two tools are working extremely well and are adding value to our customers and uh, and to our business. We're also now using our digital platform to help our customers plan ahead. And so doing complete crop plans across their entire farm, input by input, ultimately creating a business plan, and then being able to execute that business plan, you know, as the season plays out. And, and all of this being done digitally ultimately streamlines the entire uh, operation, you know, from our perspective in terms of how we work with our customers. Because once you've planned ahead, then you can basically execute on that plan. Uh, and, and again, it's, it's as simple as, you know, going into, the, into our digital hub and ordering the products, whether it's our customers uh, doing that directly or our sales agronomist on their behalf. The other thing I would say is, you know, no. we're adding new features really month by month. And Chuck talk, talked about this in, in in his prepared remarks. This new seed uh, selection tool that we've just uh, rolled out uh, will be the industry-leading seed selection tool. Um, we'll have all of our, our seeds that that we offer to our customers. And, and we've got uh, an incredible database of uh, both research and, and plot data and public trial data uh, crossed by weather and uh, and soil environment, and so we'll be able to help our customers make really good ROI decisions on seed selection. We'll be able to get access to the uh, the best financing programs through that same tool, and then ultimately order the products. And so, again, it, it not only does it help from a, a an agron- agronomy decision standpoint, but it's incredibly efficient for our customers and for us. And so. We, we think that's how this continues to play out. Um, and so, you know, I don't know if that's evolutionary or revolutionary, but it's making us, uh, help our customers make better decisions. It's making us a stickier, uh, supplier to them. Our organic growth, uh, is being driven in part because of our digital tools. Uh, and that's, you know, making a big difference in terms of our, our overall performance. And so we, we see digital as a very important tool. Uh, in, in our retail business going forward. Lastly, I'll just say with our AgBridge acquisition, um, we'll now be able to stream all of our data uh, in, in, in uh, geospatially that we're applying fertilizer or crop protection products across our entire fleet. And so that, again, is just going to give us a deeper database to be able to drive even better agronomic decisions going forward. So, you know, we're extremely excited about our, our digital uh, tools today and, and where we're going. We believe that we're going to continue to invest, you know, north of $50 million a year in our digital strategy, and that makes sense for us based on the size of business that we can leverage that against.
3: Yeah, Duffy, just, just a few other comments to augment what Mike has said is, look, um, we don't really think about it in those terms. What we do know, though, being so close to the customer as, a, as an independent advisor is that the relationship matters. And we don't, we don't expect ever that the, uh, a digital platform or portal is going to replace that. Um, th- this is a business that, that has for, for generations has been built on relationships and, and we want to build on, on top of that. Um, and, and what we're trying to do, our, our approach is very different than what you outlined in, in some of the uh, companies that have tried to do this and probably got to less results than they had hoped, is we're really letting our customers guide us. We're not building these things and and then expecting them to come and use it and, and then, of course, pay for it. The, the seed selector tool that, that Mike uh, just outlined, you know, that was built because growers can't find a platform where they can get all the, the seed varieties in an uh, unbiased view. And, and as a company that is independent and we sell it all, um, that should be our role. And, and we do that with our agronomists today, but now we're going to put uh, – not only our agronomists, but but we're going to have the tool to help growers make these very complex decisions. So, you know, we are excited about this, and we think over time there's going to be tremendous value created for farmers and for our shareholders. Uh, but this is an evolution, in my humble view, that this will not be a revolution.
1: Your next question comes from the line of Andrew Wong from RBC Capital Markets. Your line is open.
6: Hey, good morning. Um, thanks for having me on the call. So I just want to ask about um, just geopolitical risks of potash. I mean, on the upside or the downside, um, Belarus just had a pretty contentious election. Canada's relations with the US and China are pretty strained. Uh, Russia's relations are strained with pretty much, you know, many countries. So is there anything we should be watching there in terms of impacts on the potash market, potential tariffs, potential sanctions, um, anything like that? Thanks.
3: Good morning, Andrew. Yeah, yeah, look, so we are in a world where, where uh, I don't think we've seen as, as many uh, geopolitical risks as we've seen over the last two to three years uh, across the world in multiple industries. So I, I can't sit here and say, don't worry about it. Uh, but what I can say is, look, we're, we're pretty well connected and plugged into um, at least uh, the, the, the jurisdictions where we, we either produce or we sell. And I think the difference, we haven't seen any, even a hint of discussion in, in these really important, I think, uh, businesses that we have, uh, whether it's fertilizer or, or in our egg solutions business. And, and I think that the reason for that is because th- these, are, these are products that are in, in high demand. We're talking about you know, the, the overarching priority being food security. And if, if governments get this wrong because of playing politics, uh, the first group that gets that gets hurt will be will be their 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 population or their voters. So, I, I think that uh, you know my my view is that the risk is a lot lower than some other industries. And so far, we've seen very very little, uh, if anything at all, in terms of geopolitical risks that would concern us about altering trade patterns.
1: Your next question comes from the line of Jonas. Oxford from Bernstein, your line is open. Ah, uh, thank you. I was wondering about the online
7: sales. You said you uh, you grew online sales quite a lot, uh, but
5: can you put that in contrast to the market as a whole? Do you, Do you know roughly
6: what the U.S. average is? And on the as a follow up question on that, just do you see regional differences between U.S., Canada, Australia, etc.?
3: Yeah. Good morning. Uh, Mike, Frank, why don't you take those questions?
5: Sure. So good morning, Jonas. Um, so we don't have um, industry level data in terms of how, you know, what percent of the overall input market is ordered online, but but we know it's very small, you know, it, it would be in the low single uh, percent of digits. And so, uh, you know, uh, outside of what we're doing, which we're doing at scale, there's really no other um, platform that has the scale and reach that we do. Um, And so regionally, then Jonas, we, we actually, you know, so today our platform is focused on North America. And uh, so whether it's across the U S or Canada, we we don't see regional differences uh, that way. Um, Obviously, you know, depending on the crop you grow, whether you're, you know, you're growing row crops in the Midwest or, or uh, vegetable crops in California that the tools uh, do vary and they're built for purpose, and so we've, you know, we we built uh, tools that that you know address the, the local market conditions. I I would also say, you know, so as we think about the next uh, 12 months, you know, we're firstly we're going to take our our digital platform globally, and so we're now in in in, in the works of of uh, adopting and building these tools and, and and leveraging our platform into Australia and South America, and we would expect by the end of next year, you know, we'll really have the same uh, set of tools for our businesses in those geographies as we have in in North America today. And and maybe lastly, and this is just building on what Chuck mentioned here a minute ago, you know, our digital platform doesn't stand alone. And if it did, it wouldn't offer a, a lot of value. It's really the combination of our digital platform, the relationships that we have with our customers and the reach that we have, and our physical assets. And it's these three pillars together that really create the leverage opportunity that that we believe we have uniquely in digital because of our relationships and because of the extensive physical assets that we have. And so I I really believe that's why we're able to leverage our our digital tools to create real value for our customers and for, for our retail business.
1: Your next question comes from the line of John Roberts from UBS. Your line is open.
5: Uh, good morning. This is uh, Lucas Beaumont. I'm for John.
1: Uh, so I just wanted to touch on your
5: retail acquisition pipeline. So now that you've had a few more months experience with the
6: current disruptions, what are your expectations now to be able to complete bolt-ons in North America in the second half? Given that's traditionally like your higher period
5: of activity Uh, are you expecting things to be lower this year given like ongoing challenges with
7: uh, due diligence? If that occurs, would we be likely to see higher deal activity in the first half next year or would that basically push everything back 12
6: months? Um, Could you also please discuss how uh, your smaller retail competitors are faring currently? Are they sort of healthy or struggling and how this is
5: impacting potential opportunities?
3: Okay, good morning, Lucas. Mike, Frank, over to you.
5: Yeah, so, Lucas, um, obviously, we've, we've made a, a couple of nice acquisitions in Brazil. I would call them medium-sized acquisitions. Uh, we, we see, you know, more opportunity to continue to do that uh, in Brazil. So I would expect we'll, we'll continue to, you know, have opportunity in, in that market, just like we've seen here over the, the past several months. In North America, the, uh, the pipeline has slowed down a bit. We talked about this uh, after our last call, you know, partly because of covid Uh, it makes the entire process more challenging. Uh, And so we've seen that play out. I think, you know, some companies that, you know, maybe would have thought about uh, exiting at this time are probably slowing down their plans a bit. So I do think that'll impact our our deal flow a little bit, you know, coming out of 2020. That likely builds opportunity for 2021, just as as you mentioned. Now, in in terms of, you know, how are other uh, uh, retailers doing, you know, obviously we're, you know, we're, we're still looking at probably a, a dozen or so deals right now in North America. So we get to see, you know, the income statement and balance sheet from a, a lot of uh, smaller players. And I would say, you know, th- it, it continues to be tough. I mean, you, there's there's a lot of value in scale um, and, you know, I, and you need capital to, you know, continue to upgrade your, your both your physical assets and, and training into your people and, We've seen that, you know, companies that, that are subscale are, are challenged because of that. And so I think that continues to play out, which in my mind means that we'll continue to see consolidation across the retail industry, you know, for the next uh, several years ahead.
1: Your next question comes from the line of Vincent Andrews from Morgan Stanley. Your line is open.
6: Uh, thank you uh, and good morning everyone um just a kind of a follow up question on the, the the seed advisor platform or recommendation platform i'm curious if you know your customer base in north america broadly uh does it match with the market shares of the large seed companies or are you overshared with the seed companies that you with with you with with far, with, with growers that use the seed companies that you sell uh or versus pioneer which you which you don't sell and i guess what i what i'm getting at is with the The seed advisor, if if that advisor makes a recommendation that the farmer should be using, hypothetically, 100% Pioneer, and they were using 100% something else, presumably you would lose that seed sale because they're not going to be buying seeds from you. So I'm just wondering if part of the the idea of the seed advisor and it being unbiased is to is to drive more growers uh into your into your overall network and not just sell them seeds but maybe sell them all of the other inputs that they need and, and I'm just curious how that how this is all all works.
3: Yeah. Good morning Vincent. Mike Mike Frank? Yeah,
6: yeah Vincent, good good question. A little bit
5: detailed. But here's what I would say. So we, we have a very broad portfolio of, of seeds that we sell. Uh, we've got our own Dynagrow brand where we have seeds in uh, you know, corn, soy, cotton. Uh, we sell the Calvin Asgro. Uh, we sell Syngenta seeds. And we do sell uh, Corteva uh, Pioneer brand in, uh, in the southern half of the U.S. We've actually acquired some Pioneer uh, dealers in, uh, in the Midwest. So we do sell Pioneer in, in select areas in the Midwest as well. And then of course, uh, you know, uh, Corteva now has a new retail brand called Bravant, which they're providing us, you know, new germplasm to sell, uh, through our platform as well. So our seed advisor tool will present to our customers, those seeds that we have the portfolio where we can execute the sales. So, you know, if, if it's an area where we're not selling pioneer or another regional seed company, we won't, uh, be recommending those tools because we can't execute on the sale. But again as a retailer there there's no retail company that has a broader seed portfolio than we do and that's one of the benefits that we can you know take to our customers is that we sell seed from a variety of, of uh, seed breeding companies and the, again those varieties and hybrids that we have available, those are the, 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 the varieties and hybrids that will show, in our seed selection tools so that our customers can make the best decision on those products that we can offer them.
1: Your next question comes from the line of Chris Parkinson from Credit Suisse. Your line is open. Great. Thank you very much.
6: Um, can you just talk a little bit more about um, your nitrogen asset portfolio, how we should be thinking about your TNT production over time, including gas contracts, you know, your appetite for additional brownfield and do bottlenecks and even M&A, within the north american or global market thank you very much
3: good morning chris so i'll have Rafe sully just talk a little bit about the the current portfolio platform and the the brownfield projects that we've got underway and then i can answer the larger strategic question go ahead Rafe.
0: yeah thanks joe so look as you you know um our plants are located in three different regions we've got uh, about a third of our production in canada on aco gas Uh, it's traditionally been lower price than Henry Hub. We've seen that gap close a little bit uh, but it's still uh, very very uh, good cost um, gas. Uh, We've got a little over a third of our production sitting in the US on Henry Hub and the remainder a bit less than a third is in Trinidad. You will have seen that we took a plant down in May and another one in June just based on market conditions. Uh, The world's changed a little bit in the last six months. We've seen Trinidad go from a second or third quartile to a third or fourth quartile as a glutton LNG has pushed, pushed down prices um, across the globe and particularly in Europe. Um, those plants in Trinidad will probably stay down until we see market conditions improve. Um, what we have been focusing on is brownfields. As Chuck mentioned, we've, um, towards <coughs> we're coming close to being able to put online close to a million tonnes more in North America. Uh, some of that has helped us in this quarter with our record productions. Um, we'd like to continue that where it makes economic sense. That'll be our focus, Chuck. If you had to add to that,
3: Chuck yeah, uh, and then Chris, just the, the broader strategic comment. So we, we like the nitrogen business. You know, we're a top three uh, producer globally. Um, you know, we're I think we're a strong operator. Um, as Race mentioned, we, we've got a good gas position, and, and if you look at some of our margins, there's some of the highest in the world based on how we operate our networks. Um, I, I think the industry itself, is, it's the most. Uh, as you probably know, it's 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 the most uh, fragmented uh, industry that, that we certainly operate in. Um, and I think, uh, you know, we are a believer in consolidation. We like consolidation. We think consolidation drives cost efficiencies. And in this business, cost is everything. So, uh, you know, we would be always looking uh, for, for a consolidation opportunity. Uh, but what I'd say right right now is that, you know, our primary focus is is the way Rafe has described it. We've got about a million tons gonna that's going to, uh, we've already seen some of that this year, but by the end of next year, we'll have a total of a million tons of incremental capacity, which I think is great. And, and we'll continue to look for both brownfield uh, opportunities, but also M&A opportunities, but they have to make economic sense.
1: Your next question comes from the line of Steve Hansen from Raymond James. Your line is open.
9: Yeah, good morning, guys. Um, you've already described a number of different initiatives, uh, around M&A and uh, retail and uh, digital strategy expansion. I'm just curious, Chuck, how do you think about all these opportunities relative to your own stock right now in terms of capital deployment? Um, stocks not trading at extremely lofty levels, do you think about share repurchases being a priority through the back half of this year and into next, or do you feel like the opportunities are still better on the, the internal side?
3: Thanks. Yeah, good morning, Steve. So so from a capital allocation perspective, what, I, what I'd say is, is as we look forward, you know, some things haven't changed and we're going to keep an eye on some other things. Uh, Obviously, for us, we want to make sure that our assets are are very safe and and reliable, and so we would allocate capital to sort of sustainability of our assets. Um, The balance sheet, of course, uh, we've got a strong balance sheet today. I think Pedro and the finance team at the company has done a great job, Um, and we want to ensure that we have uh, maximum financial flexibility with that balance sheet. We do consider it to be A core asset for us as we move forward and then the dividend so the the dividend as I mentioned in my prepared remarks um, we we like we like having a dividend policy where the dividend will grow and it's sustainable and we've always said we want that dividend to be around 40 to 60 percent of our free cash flow Uh, and at this point in the cycle um, that's exactly where it is but it's less than 60 percent um, which, which is where we would expect it with uh, the, the, the pricing that we've seen uh, in the last few months or so. Now, going forward though, nothing's going to change in those three areas. The, 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 the look forward for us though is that you know, we, we are trying to balance the, the, the need to grow the, the retail platform. We, we did see some great opportunities in Brazil. I think the ROCO acquisition, you know, it's, it's been accretive a already. Uh, and it's got so much potential. But you're right. When we look at our stock, um, you know, th- that would also be a very strong use of, of capital. So we're going to continue to assess things. I, I think before we would get uh, more interested in a buyback, it's less about the financial strength of the company and just a bit more of certainty in the forward markets when it comes to not just the, the agricultural industry but the overall economic backdrop. Um, so we're, we're going to take a bit of a wait-and-see approach on, on the buybacks. Uh, and, and of course, we're, we're working through the rest of our growth platforms, but they will be, buybacks will be part of the decision on any internal investment. We will always compare uh, a buyback to, say, a, a, an acquisition in a different country or in the United States, for example, uh, because that's the prudent thing to do, and we've always done that.
1: Your next question comes from the line of Michael Tapholm from TD Securities. Your line is open.
4: Uh, thanks good morning um can you elaborate on your expectations for industrial ammonia demand in the second half um talk about what you've seen so far through the the first portion of q3 uh, and then also what you've got baked into guidance as far as uh, industrial ammonia
3: demand okay so why don't we have uh, jason newton just talk a little bit about uh, the outlook for the industrial demand and and then uh, i can try to give you some perspective on guidance so jason go ahead
8: uh, yeah, sure. So we've started to see um, some improvement in certain markets, particularly if you look at um, China, for example, the, the industrial ammonia use has started to pick up. And in fact, uh, Chinese imports of ammonia were, were pretty much uh, in line with year-go levels through the, the first half of the year. We've um, also seen demand start to pick up in some of the uh, surrounding uh, Asian markets, which has provided some support uh, to that region. Uh, On the other hand, in the Western markets in Europe and North America, the rebound has been uh, a little bit slower. So overall, uh, on a year-over-year basis, we'd expect uh, industrial uh, nitrogen demand to be down about 10%. um, But we expect uh, agricultural uh, growth to offset that. So it's a pretty flat uh, overall uh, uh, nitrogen uh, demand outlook.
3: And then the way we've built our guidance is we, we still believe in our order book is strong, so there'll be a shift of our product mix into agriculture, and if we get an early harvest and a, and a, a nice wide fall application season, we've seen that in historical years. So this, our guidance really doesn't reflect a volume change. In fact, our volume should be quite strong. It's just that the, the reason we took the top end of the guidance range down is we, just, we were expecting stronger pricing, but because of the, uh, slightly softer um, industrial demand that, that Jason's outlined quite nicely, uh, we don't think we're going to see the same price momentum that we, we normally would have in, this, in the fourth quarter.
1: Your next question comes from the line of Michael Picken from Cleveland Research. Your line is open.
6: Yeah, good morning. Um, just wanted to um, ask about you know, your expectations for the fall season. Uh, it sounded like you're a pretty optimistic view for retail. And if uh, we do end up getting kind of a bigger fall season and there's potentially, you know, a contraction of uh, several million acres in corn next spring,
5: I mean, uh, what type of uh, retail trajectory do you think we could see from 20 to 21
9: if we end up with a you know, big spring uh, that we have this year following the weak fall and then
5: potentially a strong fall season? Thank you
3: morning michael mike frank do you want to take those questions
5: sure so you know michael obviously a lot to play out still this fall i would say you know what we saw from planted acres this year you know 87 million soybeans uh 92 corn you know that that's within a normal range uh obviously cotton was down a couple million
6: acres
5: uh and those are high value acres for us and so we would expect if if weather improves in in west texas that we'll see some uh, cotton acres come back next year but I'd say look it's too early to, to really forecast you know how 2021 is going to play out on the retail side but right now the way I would think about it is you know we would expect uh, acres to likely be you know somewhat similar in terms of total planted acres to what we saw this year obviously the mix always changes a little bit from year to year depending on commodity prices um, mm-hmm. and if we get a, a great open fall window uh, that, that'll, you know, obviously help our, our businesses here. And, and uh, you know, then we'll get busy next spring with helping with, uh, with the spring needs. So, um, you know, that, as Chuck said, you know, we're, we're expecting uh, with the crop progress that we're seeing this year, it's coming in pretty quick. Uh, it, should, it should line up for a, a nice open uh, fall window for fertilizer applications, at least in North America this year.
1: Your next question comes from the line of Silky Kuek from JV Morgan Securities. Your line is open.
0: Hi, good morning. How are you? Good, thank you. Um, I have two um, short potash questions. Um, c- can you discuss what um, what effect, like repricing of potash tons in China had on the um, offshore potash prices quarter and, and have all of the tons repriced? And Secondly, I, I was wondering what your harvest and forecast is um, for, for North America. Like, that, Does your um, 10.9 to 11.5 million ton forecast assume that there's a strong post-harvest season in the U.S.?
3: Okay, thank you very much for the question. Ken Seitz, why don't you take those?
4: Sure, uh, good morning and thank you, yes. So yes, we did uh, with the pricing of the Chinese contract there on the last day of April, uh, we did have a price adjustment in the quarter, and so we've taken all of that. Um, that's behind us and in, in, in our results. Um, with respect to sort of the balance of the season in this fall, we've talked about it a little bit on this call, but you know, with the flush of inventories throughout the balance this year and uh, assuming some good weather in places like China and North America and certainly we're seeing strong farmer affordability in Brazil and India, India, yeah, we expect, um, as Chuck shared, our guidance of 65 to 67 million tons to be intact and being committed out into October. We expect our guidance of um, 12.1 to 12.5 million tons to remain intact as well. Yeah, and which, uh, as Chuck has shared, I think positions as well as an industry and as nutrient heading into 2021.
1: There are no further questions at this time. I turn the call to Richard Downey, VP Investor Relations, for closing remarks.
2: Thanks, Operator, and thank you, everyone, for joining us this morning. If you have any extra questions, IR is available uh, to uh, to answer them. Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: This concludes today's conference call. You may now disconnect.